So we're switching. We're in God's word. So everybody take a breath. What psalm are we in? Okay. What psalm were we in last week? Okay. <laughs> what psalm are we going to be in next Sunday? At 98, we're going to be there. Um, we're spending the Christmas in the psalms. Uh, we actually started in Psalm 14. Pastor Cody took us there. And Psalm 14 talks about, oh, that salvation would come. And uh, it took us to Psalm uh, 96 last Sunday. And uh, towards the end, I think it's verse 13, it says, for he comes. Uh, it's one of the most amazing things about our God. Because the king that reigns came. Uh, look at Psalm 97 there. I believe it's page 499 if you're using one of the Bibles there. And the first statement there in the English Standard Version is the Lord reigns. Who reigns? And, and what does the Lord do? He reigns. Uh, who, who reigns? Managers don't reign. Um, 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 uh, kings reign. That's what this is. This is a kingship statement. The Lord reigns. He is the one that reigns. Now think about that statement and then look down at verse 9. It says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. And we have those two statements up on the screens here. The Lord reigns and for you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And I think both of those statements as a church, we would, we would reply by going, Amen, right? Uh, we would do that. And then I want to bring something in here. I want to bring in the picture of the nativity scene with that. And I bring that in there and I put that there. And I'm going to say this. Uh, the, the, the imagery along with the headline has a vast reality of a oxymoron. Why do I say that? Because the headline and the actual imagery of the reality, you know, we use the imagery here of this reality, it, it just... I don't think we understand the absurdity of it all. And I mean that in a positive way. Think about the imagery. We understand that uh, when baby Jesus was born, he was born to a poor, young, pregnant, unwed couple from Hicksville, Israel. Uh, That was really the reality of it. Uh, No room for them in, in an inn. Born in a barn. Smiling cows and sheep and a little drummer boy that go with it. Maybe not, but the other part's true. And then Psalm 97 starts out by saying that the Lord reigns. Do you see the absurdity? I mean, the Lord that reigns over all the earth came as a baby. We have a hard time, I think, really grabbing a hold of that. And, and yet it's an awesome reality. And yet it's an absurd reality because, let me say it this way, grace is absurd. Grace is absurd. I shared with you last Sunday from the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi, who had 34, 34-year-old young man who died this past September, read to you a little bit about it. I would encourage you to get that book. I think it's the new uh, Case for Christ that Lee Strobel wrote uh, a few decades ago. He actually does the introduction for uh, Nabil's book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I would highly encourage you to read. I think it's kind of the uh, Case for Christ in our day. It tells of him as a devout Muslim, growing up in a devout Muslim family in the day, and 
tells I read last Sunday of just being in that place where he's at and and, and the fact of this idea that God, the second person of the Trinity, is born in the flesh and it's an absurd concept to a Muslim. Do you know that? Because as I read, Allah would never do that. Allah would never enter through the birth canal of a woman, put his feet down here on an evil, wicked world. Allah would never do that. But he did. That's not even getting in the whole conversation about a triune God and the second person of the Trinity coming and being that one in that discussion. Add to that whole thing, Colossians chapter 1, that says, for by him, by the way, it's referencing Jesus Christ clearly in the text, for by Jesus Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And we would, we would hear that, and I think we are the kind of church and the kind of people that say amen to that. Jesus Christ did that because God's word says that he did that. And then we look at the nativity scene and we go... And somehow, oftentimes, Jesus gets smaller in our mind because of... But here's the fact of the matter. The one that reigns, the one who is the Lord over all the earth, the Colossians 1, 1, is the one that was born in a baby. What king would do that? What king would do that? Let alone divinity. I'm telling you, friends, grace is absurd. It is absurdly awesome. And by the way, this time of the year, we oftentimes will hear, will say that he entered into our world as a baby. Actually, then, I would suggest theologically that is not a correct statement because the fact of the matter is he entered into his world as a baby. It's all his. He created it all. He reigns over it all. And yet that one entered into his world. World, I'm telling you, the king that reigns is the one that came and as a baby to a poor, young, pregnant, unwed couple from Hicksville, Israel with no room in an inn, born in a barn, the king that reigns came. Psalm 97 is going to continue to help us. Let's go there and, and work it out here. I've got it broken in your sermon notes into three sections, verses 1 through 6. It says, the Lord, coming from the text, the Lord reigns. And then verses 7 through 9, all who comes from verse 7. And then uh, uh, you who, uh, verses 10 through 12, oh, you who. We'll, we'll get there in just a couple minutes. Let's, let's begin here with this already stated, the Lord. The Lord is king. I've already set that up. The Lord is king. Know that. The Lord is the king that reigns. He is not the Lord far off and distant and unaware. No, no, no. The Lord actively, presently, in the past and in the future, reigns. Period. End of story. There's so much comfort in that. We see that also in verse 5. He's the Lord of all the earth. Verse 9, as I mentioned, he's the most high over all the earth. By the way, what's the biblical response to that? It's interesting. In verse 1, it says, the Lord reigns. And then it says, let. I talked about let last, last Sunday in chapter 96. And it's one of those things like, some speak, 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 chapter 96. And then it's like, let. Just 
Let the world speak. Actually, it continues on with that. Because let the earth rejoice. By the way, I don't think it's speaking to the people on the earth. It's literally talking about the idea of the physical earth. Let the earth rejoice. And I think the text validates that here in a little bit. Let the earth rejoice and let the many coastlands or let the, let the many islands or, or let the, the farthest islands be glad. Listen, here's the deal. The Lord does not need you and I to be glorified. I mean, just the earth can do that. How does it do that? Does it have like a mouth? I don't know, but it does. (laughs) Just because it is. And, And the earth doesn't have a problem with that. And the islands don't have a problem with that. I mean, they rejoice and they are glad in the fact that the Lord reigns over them. But think about this. I would suggest that it's harder for us than it is the earth and the islands to truly be people that love the fact that the Lord reigns. You know why? Why? Because every day is a battle in our own hearts for who's king and queen today. Isn't that true? I think we say that the Lord reigns and we love that and we know that's a truth and yet it's also we understand our own hearts and the battle in our own hearts to make that a reality. Yet the earth doesn't have a problem with it and the islands don't have a problem with it. They don't push back. They don't fight back. But we have a tendency too. Hey, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. In fact, I love how the psalmist goes here because I think he, through the Spirit of God, understands that we have a hard time understanding the grandness of the Lord. If you really want to know how awesome a king is, go take a look at where the king reigns and what he rules over. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to tell you what that is. So the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Look at verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Wow, that sounds like Exodus. And the cloud surrounds God's presence on Mount Sinai, protecting God's people from actually being able to look at his full glory and dying in his presence. The clouds and the thick darkness are all around him, and righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne that's really cool. I've, we've, we've built some houses in the past, and you know, if you've constructed things or in that industry, you know how important foundations are, right? I mean, you spend actually a lot of time and a lot of effort on getting a solid, strong foundation, because if you have a foundation that's strong, you'll have a house that, that will be able to stay up, and if you don't, so the foundation's really important, so it's really interesting. It's put in kind of like a picture that we can see, like, what's the foundation that God's throne sits on? Like, what, what the, the four legs that go down, what do those sit on? And it tells us it sits on a foundation of righteousness and justice. That's a really cool picture. The Lord sits strengthened and his chair will not collapse because the foundation holding up his very throne is that is righteousness and justice. That's our God. Verse 3. Not only are there clouds, not only there is a foundation, but there's a fire Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Yowzer. That just kind of says it, huh? And then verse 4, his lightnings light up the world. 
The earth sees and trembles. I love that first part of that. You know, the cults haven't really been light, lighting things up a whole lot lately, bless their hearts. But when things do, it's like, man, they just lit it up. And, and here, lightning is really cool. As long as it's not hitting you. Uh, lightning is just like, poof, and the power of that. And I love in the text, it just doesn't say lightnings, but it tells who owns the lightnings. Who owns the lightnings? He does. The king that reigned as clouds all around his throne, his foundation of righteousness and justice, fire goes out and consumes uh, uh, his adversaries in it. And ultimately, that will come to a full final culmination. And on top of that, his lightning is kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. I think it's cool. I mean, that is our God, you guys. That is our God. And then, oh, it keeps going. Verse 5. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. What does that mean? I'm still kind of honestly trying to work out exactly what that means. I just know this. We're in Indiana. We don't have mountains. And I know that at the beginning of the month, Karen and I were out in Colorado, and they have mountains. And they are stunning and awing. And it's, I think it's kind of like this idea that when the mountains, as awesome as they are, when the Lord's presence is there, His awesomeness is so awesome that the mountains just like melt in His awesomeness. That's awesome, isn't it? That's what's going on with it all. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. And then verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. (laughs) And then here we kind of think have a transitional statement. And all the peoples, because everything so before this has been kind of inanimate objects of creation. Now we have the people. And the peoples, by the way, how many of his peoples? All of the peoples. By the way, not half of the peoples, not a quarter of the peoples, not a three quarters of the peoples, not most of the peoples, but what? All of the people see his glory. And it's just laid it all out. Lord reigns. The earth rejoices. The islands, they are glad that the Lord reigns. And the earth rejoices that the Lord reigns. And the Lord sits in his cloud protecting sin-cursed reality from his holiness. And yet he is unlike any. And his throne is set on a foundation of righteousness and justice. And and fire will consume his adversaries. And his lightning light up the world. And the mountains, because he's so awesome in his reigning, the mountains will not want for their glory to be stated. They'll just melt like wax. So the Lord's glory is the only glory that stands above all things. And all the people see it. Just look into the heavens and look into the skies. What an opening. But now watch, because there's a turn here in what takes place. The Lord is king. But the second thing, there are those who worship idols. Look at verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Now, 
what I was just seeking to take you through there and trying to grab a hold of the first verses of this psalm and seeing the, the greatness and the results and the reality of the fact that the Lord is reigned. And when we see that and we say that and we feel that, and then all of a sudden it says there are those, they're all worshipers of images. And it just is like, that's dumb. Why would you do that? In light of what just came out. Why why would you be that? Why would you worship anything other than the one who reigns over that all? I think that's the whole intent of the psalmist. Is setting up the greatness of the Lord. And yet then it comes into this, but even though all see his glory, there are those who worship the images, idols, They are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. A sarcastic statement. Worship him, all you gods. Idols can be wicked things that become ultimate things. I think oftentimes we think in this side of it, and it's true. Idols can be wicked things that become our ultimate things that we worship, like worshiping Satan or witchcraft or some false god or an idol carved out of wood or stone. How foolish. But also it can be wicked things like just revenge or wicked rulership, whether that's wicked rulership of a nation of people or wicked rulership of a, of a group of people or a family of people. Wicked things, when they become the ultimate things, those are images, those are idols. But also, idols can be good things that become an ultimate thing. Good things that we end up worshiping, things that are not supposed to be worshiped, but we do. For instance, I'll just mention a couple possibilities for you to ponder. Uh, One is God has given us the ability to think and the ability to process in our thinking and knowledge. And yet our knowledge or our personal viewpoints or our own ideology or our own philosophy can end up becoming our own idols that we live for. Well, that's what Scripture says, but I believe. What What has that person just done right there? They have just declared themselves the one that determines truth. And friends, God has given us the ability to think, and God loves thinkers, and God loves people who will even question in that process of it. But when it comes right down to it, when we begin saying, no, this is what I said as truth, I'm telling you, we are stepping in the feet of God, and we are making what is a good thing of being able to think an ultimate thing, and it is worshiping the wrong thing. Relationships can become idols that we live for. Girlfriend, a boyfriend, a spouse, kids, or even the love of a parent. So nothing's wrong with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Nothing's wrong with a spouse. Nothing's wrong with kids. Nothing's wrong with wanting the love of a parent. But when that becomes the thing that we make as the idol of our life, that thing is the thing that we worship. Here's another one. Just desires can become idols. Desire for love or to be love is a good thing, but when that becomes the thing and that becomes our God, we're in trouble. Our career can end up becoming the thing that we desire and idol and worship, and we give so much more of our heart to our career and developing that. 
And that can become an idol. Nothing's wrong with careers. Nothing's wrong with advancement. It's the same thing with money. It's the same thing with sex. It's the same thing with our physique. It's the same thing with our image. I'll even kind of go on. It's the same thing with pursuing religiousness. Or it's the same thing of, of having the good idea of man. If I could have no debt, that would be awesome. But when that becomes the idol in our life, listen, who's in charge and who's being worshipped? And good things can become ultimate things And that is not the worship of the Lord, they're idols. Note, the text says, all worshipers of image will be put to shame. Idols just bring disgrace, whether that be in the present or the future or both. Why? Because Yahweh reigns. That's why. The Lord reigns. And then at the end of verse 7, it's kind of like this teasing sarcasm. Go ahead, you idols. Go ahead and worship God. Here's the fact of the matter. They won't. And that's the point. They won't. Because they want to be worshipped. Verses 8 and 9, kind of then a response to that. A continuation of Zion or Jerusalem hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And here's the connect. You are exalted far above all gods. Truth of the matter is there are no other gods. There is only one God. And yet we have a way of making things gods. And every day is a battle for our affection. Every day we battle the idolatry of our own hearts. You and I do. True? The Lord is king. All who worship idols and then you who. Third thing, verses 10 through 12. You who love the Lord. You who love the Lord. You see that in verse 10? Oh, you who love the Lord. Friends, you can't get away from Scripture and not understanding that Scripture draws a dividing line. There are two types of people. There are those who love the Lord and are in relationship with the Lord and those that are not in relationship with the Lord. That's that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. And Jesus even talks about in Matthew 7, one of the most mind-boggling passages in all of Scripture in my mind where the Pharisees and those very religious people are before the Lord. It's like, oh, Lord, you know who we are. And he's like, no, actually, I don't know who you are. Fact of the matter is you do things, you do religious things. You even know the Old Testament memorized back and forth. You do all the religiosity. But the fact of the matter is there is no relationship going on here. And you may think there's a relationship, but the Lord is like, what relationship? There is no loving relationship going on here. The scriptures say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Do you have a you who love the Lord story? A time where you stepped into that relationship with the Lord? It's not about what you know about God. It's not even about do you believe there's a God because loved ones, even the demons know that there is a God. And demons even use scripture. You who love the Lord, you who are in relationship with the Lord. My stepdad died Tuesday evening, 7.42 p.m. 
Kircher was a wonderful man. He was a professor at Moody for many years in music and worship. Irony of this. My stepdad died 22 years to the day after my dad died. Bless my mom's heart. My mom was there. My oldest brother and his wife were there, and Karen and I were there. And uh, we saw Kirchhoff die. I don't want to die that way. My dad died angry with the Lord. Kirchhoff died rejoicing in the I want to die that way. After you'd passed, some of the staff came in. So sweet. Man, those people are so sweet. And uh, this one lady, she's an African-American lady from, I think, Jamaica. And, uh, she knows the Lord. No question about it. She's a sweet, mature, solid woman the Lord. She says to my mom, hey, your husband's good. He's where he needs to be right now. How did she know that? How does anybody know? You see, we live in a country where uh, no matter if anyone uh, thinks there is a God or not, you come down to a point generally where all good dogs go to heaven. But seriously, the question on the table in all this as we look at Psalm 97 is, how do we know? How do I know that Kirchhoff is with the Lord? I know that Kirchhoff is with the Lord because Kirchhoff came to understand through God's word that he was a sinner separated from God because of sin and because of his sin. And that by receiving Christ as his Savior and being redeemed in the Lord through that, that gift, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, not by his works, not by his own efforts, but by receiving Christ as his Savior, that he is redeemed in the Lord. Not as some little, like, uh, uh, extra ticket to put in your back pocket that then has, makes no difference in one life. That's Mark chapter 4 in the four soils. But it changes life. Things change and he begins to grow in Christ and mature in Christ. That was Kirchhoff. And he is with the Lord. Not because I hope so but because I know so from what God's word says and what transpired in his relationship with the Lord. I know. And if you don't know that you know that you know, you need to talk with someone and you need to come to know Christ as your Savior because loved one, don't play the I hope game. One minute, he was there. The next minute, no life. And what now? This is no game. Oh, you who love the Lord. Got to move. There's a response to that. Hate evil. See that? That's like not like play with evil, but hate it. It carries this idea in it that we're to love what the Lord loves and we're to hate what the Lord hates. And know that the Lord hates evil. 
We live in a wicked, evil world that the Lord is allowing to be the case for this time being in redemptive history. But know this. Love what the Lord loves increasingly so. And increasingly, let's more and more hate what the Lord hates. And I'm just going to throw this out on the table here for you to ponder because I've still not forgot it from when I was in seminary. And my professor, Dr. Arp, who is with the Lord, um, asked this question. He said, uh, hey guys, how much evil is okay for you? I was like, dude, I know you're a prophet, sometimes a bit awkward, but... And then I began thinking about that as he was talking about it. It's a good question. If we're to hate evil, how much evil is okay in our homes? With what we watch, with what we say, with what we laugh at, with what we put up with, what we... You get the idea. I'm just going to say, this is not about legalism. But we're to love what the Lord loves and increasingly hate what the Lord hates. More of that in us, right? More of that in us. Look at these last couple of verses. This is some really cool statement. Look at this. He preserves the lives of his saints. Hey, for all of those who may be struggling, if you know Christ as your Savior, if there's a time where you've come to know Christ as your Savior and you're struggling with your salvation and it's like, God's got to give up on me. I mean, I've got to have lost my salvation this week and last week and the week before and the one before. Know this. Listen, you do not preserve your salvation. He does. And so this whole idea of like, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in. Well, what's with that? That's based on me. If it was, I'm out. Just... Because I know my own heart. And yet in it, it's the Lord who preserves. Isn't that encouraging? The Lord holds you. If you've been struggling with that issue, listen, you've got to grab a hold of this and know that He preserves the lives of His saints. And He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Listen, He preserves them, He delivers them. Know this, this by the way, when He delivers them from the hands of the wicked, this does not mean a guarantee against casualties. Like, awesome, so nothing bad's ever going to happen to me. Yeah, run that one by the Apostle Paul and by, run that one by Christ himself. Uh, no, that's not what it's saying. This is a promise of God's defense and his watchful eye. In God's sovereignty, he may allow us to die from cancer. He may allow us to have a catastrophic situation. Like my stepdad, he may allow us to get Alzheimer's and just completely have the body fall apart slowly over time. He also may have us die of martyrdom. Listen, that's in God's hands with it, but we know this. We have his defense and his watchful eye in it all. And he preserves us. And these statements are factual, not wishful. Because these are the statements of eternal history. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteousness. It's this light dawns for the righteous. And joy for the upright of heart. By the way, uh, that, that then means that joy is not something you connive up in yourself. Joy is a supernatural reality of God at work in you and I. Joy comes out of God at work in me as I come to understand who he is from what scripture says. And we are interacting together in that whole of it all. And how crazy is this that the Apostle Paul can be in jail for doing nothing wrong or evil and rejoice. What kind of a nut job does that? 
Someone who understands absurd grace. People given absurd grace need to start living joyfully and respond and, and, and even externally absurdly. Absurd grace drives absurd living. And it shows. So I could say, we need to start thinking more absurdly. Because grace is absurd. We need to start rejoicing more absurdly. Because grace is absurd. Hey, it's Christmas time. The baby born in the manger is the one we've just been talking about. The one that preserves. The one that brings joy. The one that reigns in all that we talked about. The one that people who all see, yet those who are more interested in foolish, fake, false, lifeless stuff is useless and is shameful in light of the one that came into birth as the one who is the Lord that reigns over all. What king would come and do what he did? Our king. The king that reigns. Friends, I'm telling you, let's get a little more absurd this Christmas. Because this isn't just about warm fuzzies of a baby born in a cute little manger. It probably wasn't that cute. probably wasn't that comfortable. It probably didn't smell that wonderful. And I don't think there was a drummer boy. And maybe the animals were smiling. You who love the Lord, verse 12, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. By the way, we're not made self-righteous. It is his righteousness imputed to us. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Friends, the story of the nativity is absolutely absurd because the Lord that reigns, who is the Lord over all the earth, came. He came into his world, born as a baby, so that he would be our perfect representative. The perfect, sinless representative. Born, just like you and I, well, you know, as far as human, not a virgin birth for us, but for him. And born as our perfect representative to go to the cross, to die in our place, and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, thus making his gift of his payment available to you and I. Do you know that story? Have you received that gift? And if you have, booyah, it's time to rejoice this Christmas. And so, Lord, that's what we do. We rejoice. We thank you. We praise you. We lift your name high, Lord. 
We are glad. We give thanks because of who you are and because of what you have done. Lord, you are the king. You are the one who reigns. Listen, this is not just about some idea that some moral figure was born and had some specialness about him. No, 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 no. God, the Lord, the king that reigns, who created all, is over it all. That king came in a baby. What king would do that? You did. And so we worship you and we adore you. And only your name is the name that we are to be running to and we are to be worshiping. And God, thank you for your grace. It is so crazy, wonderfully absurd that you and your holiness would give any of us a moment of your attention, a moment of anything of yours, and yet you gave your life for us. How crazy absurd is that? That is grace. And that is not something to take advantage of. And that is not something to take lightly. That is something to revel in and to rejoice in and to give thanks for. Because the birth of Christ is a representative image reality of the work that you have done for eternity. And God, I pray if someone in this room does not know you, someone even may who say they may, but you say, I don't know you. God, would you reveal that to them? And would you draw them to you? And may they drive the stake in the ground with you and know that they know that they know they have relationship with the Lord who reigns, who came as their perfect representative to pay the price for their sin rose from the grave and one day is coming back again. Thank you that we can know that we know that we know. In the name of Christ we pray.